I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alex Merrill. Welcome to the Inspirati. I've enlisted a roster of ultra-talented international creators and curators to join me on this podcast to talk about how they've charted their individual paths, overcome challenges, and found their true artistic selves. From candid conversations with eminent makers to showcasing exciting up-and-comers across the industries of art, music, fashion, entertainment, literature, and design, we get to illuminate our perspectives, learning from these unique stars within the constellation of global creation. Creativity. The Inspirati was created for those seeking inspiration and those seeking to inspire. Thanks for listening. In his TEDx talk called Debunking the Five Most Common Meditation Myths, Light Watkins hits my personal leading excuse for not meditating head on. I don't have time. I say this to myself far too frequently before spending that same 15 minutes scrolling through Instagram. But something I didn't know before hearing Light's talk was the difference between chronological and biological aging. Our chronological age is I'm 33, then 34, then 35 every 12 months. Our biological age refers to how old we seem based on our physiology, and that number speeds up or slows down based on how much stress is in our bodies. As Light explains, a study published in the International Journal of Neuroscience showed that if you had a matching chronological and biological age on your 30th birthday and you started meditating daily, by the time you were 35, your biological age was that of your 23-year-old self. As that number pertains to skin elasticity, sexual responsiveness, auditory threshold, vision, and memory. In other words, meditation may actually be the only activity that can give you time back. As one of the world's leading experts on meditation, Light has shared this kind of knowledge across the globe, opening up the conversation about the good meditation does for your mind, body, and spirit. He has delivered over 500 wellness-centric talks, led countless workshops and retreats, and taught thousands of people to meditate. He hosts a weekly podcast called At the End of the Tunnel and has published three books, The Inner Gym, Bliss More, and Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which actually comes out today. Make sure to pick that up. It's a collection of stories, essays, and exercises to spark your creative instincts and help you tap in to inspiration. We talked about the unexpected messengers that guide us on our individual journeys, how the real practice is in the field of life, not the meditation class and how the muse shows up when the hard work does. Please enjoy this conversation with the always inspiring Light Watkins. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful, how are you? Excellent, very well. I just spilled tea all over my desk, but apart from that. (laughs) Where have you been this past year? I'm currently in Mexico City, of all places. Nice. I started off around my family in Atlanta, and then um, I was in L.A. for a bit, and then I came here. So, yeah, I've been here for almost five months now. Wow. And you've been doing a sort of nomadic, minimalist Mm, mm -hmm. lifestyle for a bit, yeah? Yeah, since uh, May of 2018. So it'll be three years next month. And what did that entail? I basically got rid of everything in my two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica and started living out of a carry-on bag. And and then I I downsized because it was still too much. Now I'm in a backpack. (laughs) (laughs) I did 
I think 10 weeks was my max in carry on. When I used to live in New York and I was on the road every week, I finally just realized dead weight is dead weight at the end of the day. Like it doesn't matter how good you want to look at the party. If you're dragging things around like some sort of gypsy caravan, it really gets in the way of your experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It start, that's how it started for me. The year before I, I did it, I was on the road constantly. And yeah. I was like, I'm, there's like this whole section of my wardrobe I never really wear. And I'm always wearing these handful of things. Let me just get rid of that. And then I thought, well, let me get rid of everything else. And then let me get rid of the whole apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And so the challenge was no storage, nothing. Just get rid of all all my scrapbooks and everything, every single thing, journals, and just have like my little capsule wardrobe. And then that's it. And just like a few accessories that I use every day. Wow. So you've got a lot of memories then stockpiled in your brain instead. Well, to be fair, I did scan in all of my photos and journal pages and stuff. So I still have everything uh, digitally. I just don't, it's not sitting around collecting dust anywhere, being ignored by me. Taking up mental space and physical space. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Totally. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we've ever met properly, but I've seen you over the years in New York and LA. And I think, were you at Summit at Sea? I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that was the first time I saw you because I remember very clearly you have a very bright presence. And it's funny because for how many people we end up interacting with in, in those kinds of circles in New York and Los Angeles who are, you know, in different fields that are sort of assisting people with their relationships, with their mental, emotional, spiritual work that's not always the case. So it, uh, (laughs) it was that much more obvious in sort of seeing kind of how you move through the world, that there is that amazing brightness to you. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate that, Alex. Of course. Yeah. So you said your family's in Atlanta, but you grew up in Alabama, right? Yeah, I grew up in Alabama. Now I have a brother still there and his family, but my, the bulk of my family now is in, uh, Atlanta. Okay. Nice. And big family, right? You've got a lot of siblings? Yeah, I do. Actually, I have three brothers and uh and a half sister. And then I have a bunch of nieces and nephews now and my parents are still around and their brothers and sisters are still around. So, yeah, it's a nice size family. Nice. I haven't seen most of them in a while, but yeah, we're all pretty relatively close for family. <laughs> It's an important qualifier. No one's no one's estranged, which is which I think it's really I'm really grateful for after, you know, you get older and you see all kinds of crazy things. And yeah, I'm, I'm blessed. Yeah, for sure. What were your early memories of interacting within a family that big? Um, you know, just kind of mostly playing, playing with cousins, playing outside. There's a lot of playtime. Yeah. And then also in Alabama. I don't have you been to Alabama before? I haven't. No. So you're Canadian, right? I'm Canadian, but my father's whole side was from Kentucky. Okay. So growing up, I mean, he really didn't fit in there. Okay. He's actually he's marrying a guy now and that was very much not the thing there. So growing up, we would go back and visit this very southern side of the family. And I always kind of loved it because my my grandmother had been like captured the cheerleading squad and, you know, prom queen and all that. And I thought it was kind of cool because I was watching American high school movies when I was 16 and being like, oh, wow, this is like a movie set. But I haven't had the opportunity of traveling around that part of America very much. And I'd really love to. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's the culture there is just... It's very different from like New York and LA and it's, uh, yeah. you know, there's a rich history of all kinds of craziness happening in those parts of the country, especially when it comes to race relations. So there was a lot of, sure. of that in the conversation growing up. Mm. And uh, a lot of these interviews that I've been doing, people, you know, have been following me since the uh, George Floyd thing last summer. And I was posting a lot, yeah. you, know, you know, where did all that come from? And it's like, well, that's been my that's been the conversation in my family my whole life. So where did that come from? Yeah. You're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was happening in the country. It's like, it's like me too. It's like a woman saying, finally opening up about all her experiences. Like, where's that coming from? Well, that totally. woman. So that's where yeah. it comes from. I don't know my, if you noticed. My lived experience. <laughs> you were a very clear 
impactful voice that I think it's an impossible moment to to maintain composure if you care about what's happening in the country. And so I think that having having your voice, I mean, especially as as a white person, sort of trying to figure out the best way to listen and what the best course of action was for me, I found I found everything you had to say extremely helpful and positive, which was really nice. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It, it, it almost was like, I don't want to say it's accidental, but, you know, I made a, so I'm in Mexico City right now. And last uh, Valentine's Day of 2020, just before everything happened, I made a vow to myself to record one video a day mm. of some sort of insight or inspiration, because I've been writing a daily dose of inspiration since June of 2016. And I mentioned earlier, I went nomadic May 2018. So around like end of May, beginning of June, that's my birthday. I usually, that's when I take on these new commitments, except this was an exception when I was in Mexico City, where I am now, ironically. Yeah. But yeah, so so that video, those, those videos that I was doing was like an extension of something I was already doing. And I was, you know, and I kind of like to tap into whatever the national conversation is. So back when everyone was watching um, the Tiger King, you know, I did a video about that. And and when Wild Wild Country, so all the like different yeah. Netflix shows, The Queen's Gambit, when Adele talked about her weight, I did a video. about. So I, mm. I kind of liked to weigh in on things like that. Um, the entanglement when Will Smith and Jada did that. And so, yeah, the whole George Floyd thing was just like, okay, what do I have to say about this? Because they're typically when when something when news breaks, there's like usually shock, and then there's like two sides. And there's like the the conservative side, their viewpoint, and then there's the woke side and their viewpoint. And those are two very extremes that I don't always kind yeah. of see eye to eye with. So I try to like find some way to kind of tie it all together, which is usually it ends up being what I call the ten thousand foot view of everything and so so if you go back and look at any of my videos because they're all archived on my IGTV you'll notice that the pattern is that they're all kind of a broader perspective yeah so so you're not really invalidating anyone's direct experience it's really more okay what about your argument can we validate what about your argument can we validate where can we find common ground Well, even just in sort of like an interpersonal approach to dealing with challenge, there's a very different thing trying to be right, trying to stoke the fires of one side or another and trying to close the space between, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that adding to that nuance that exists in the middle, especially in a moment when things are so polarized and there is so much cancel culture, contributing to that is... Well, it's probably, you know, something that's a lot more helpful when you meditate a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it, like I say, it's just an extension. It's what I'd be saying anyway. Yeah. To whoever I'm around. So you can't extract that out of the whole thing. I heard Dave, you know, Dave Ramsey is the financial guru. No, he does. He's this thing called Financial Freedom University or something. He's like huge in the financial books and self-help scene. And he's also a bit Christian. So he's always talking about church and Christianity and whatnot. And he says that a lot of times people will say, I love everything Dave says, except for the Christian thing. Like if I could just leave that out of the equation. And Dave said, well, if you take the Christian out, you don't get me. Like That's such an integral part to who I am. Yeah. Like it informs my worldview on finances and financial freedom. Mm-hmm. And so same thing is kind of true with, I think all of us really, but specifically with me is you can't take the meditation and the sort of wellness experiences out of my perspective because that's what helps to shape my perspective. The fact that I'm black is just one tiny little component to my perspective on that conversation. The fact that I'm a male is another one. Mm -hmm. The fact that I've been all over the world and I'm nomading and, you know, all of that plays into the perspective. Absolutely. And also in, in your ability probably to connect with people from a lot of different walks of life. Yeah. As as a student in school, what was your experience with early education, especially now that we're kind of talking about integrating mindfulness and meditation practices into school? What was it like for you? Honestly, I, I felt like 
school was very much a chore. Yeah. Like the academic aspect of school was a chore Okay, because I couldn't really relate to, like I was asking questions early, early, early on, like, how is this relevant? How is this going to be relevant for me as an adult? <laughs> Even though I don't know what it's like to be as an adult, but I can imagine I'm not going to have to figure out a trigonometry equation, you know, as an adult. Totally. I'm like, can you show me how to balance a checkbook? Yeah. It's like, I don't think my mom would be able to solve this problem <laughs> and she's in her thirties. So why are we spending all this time, all this energy? Because yeah. nobody really talked about in public schools in Alabama, nobody really talked about the important thing was the process of learning. And, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, it's the whole thing, the whole conversation now with Seth Godin and uh, Sir Ken Robinson and all these guys are talking about how the school system is basically set up to create factory workers. And yeah. it's not encouraging us to think independently and be solution oriented. It's really about memorization and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I felt all of that, although I didn't have that language to describe it. Yes. It was kind of like the same experience with church, right? I went to church my whole childhood and it just didn't see, it didn't sit well. It was like I was a square trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And it just didn't, didn't, I never really felt uh, integrated with what I was being exposed to. I just, I just would leave with more questions and answers on a daily basis, Mm. but I did enjoy the social aspect of school and church. So I knew that I was very engaged socially and I was really interested in observing people and questioning why people did the things that they did or thought the way that they thought. And and so just, I'll give you an example of an experiment that I conducted that kind of summarizes my whole childhood for the most part. So I, I remember one week in high school, you know, I'm getting ready for school and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm spending a lot of time picking out clothes to wear. I'm like, is anybody even noticing the clothes that we're wearing? Like, if I had to really think about the clothes that my friends are wearing, would I be able to sit down and itemize their different articles of clothing? And I couldn't. And I was consumed with, you know, trying to look a different way every day. And so I decided to run this experiment. I said, what would happen if I wear the same outfit every day for this week? I wonder if anybody would even notice. If they do notice, would they say anything? Right. So I I had this like khaki pants and this like purple mock turtleneck shirt. That was the style back then. And I decided to wear that every day and come home and, you know, wash it and then put it on again and wear it the next day. And I did that every day for that school week, Monday to Friday. (laughs) Nobody said a word. Nobody said a thing. Nobody looked at me strange. I mean, maybe somebody noticed it, but nobody said anything. And I I think I, I remember choosing that particular combination because it wasn't too conservative, right? Purple is not the most conservative color for a guy in high school. But nobody said anything. Well, they were all too consumed about what they were wearing. And that's what I figured out. Yeah. I said, nobody's paying attention because everybody's so concerned about what other people think about them. Yeah. So that was a that was very liberating for me at the time, I remember. Because mm. then I, I stopped caring about what people thought about me for the most part. You know, like there was still a little bit there, but for the most part, it was like I'd gotten out of my own little cage that I created for myself around what I felt like or how much I felt like people were paying attention. And I was, I wasn't like a, you know, little hermit. And I was like the class president. I was, you know, the yearbook editor. Like I had some prominent positions in school and I was a fairly popular person. So, um, so I had some eyeballs on me, but still nobody said anything. And so I never even told anybody about this experiment until now. <laughs> so yeah, but that's kind of how I was. It was very experimental. It was very observant. And I always questioned those kinds of things. Well, it's interesting because that's kind of an early experiment that gets you into that way of thinking where you become more more interested in being interested as opposed to being interesting. Mm, I like that. Which... I think overall ends up setting you up in this way where you can play without the self-consciousness that I think so frequently just gets us in our own way. Mm -hmm. So you went to college, Mm -hmm. came out, you were working in advertising, modeling a bit, and then kind of dabbling in, in meditation. I like that you've been really candid about how your original experiences were, were challenging. Yeah. I, I worked I worked in advertising for three months after college, 
and then realized that even though it was a great job, it was a nine to five job. And I just didn't, again, it's like the church and school. I was like, I don't know, this doesn't really suit me. <laughs> and now I'm an adult, so I don't have to do it. I don't yeah. have to go to church. Like my mom said, I don't have to go to school. Like the, the state says, Yeah, I don't have to work at this job. I can do whatever I want to do. So what is my imagination? What is it telling me? I didn't have the language for follow your heart and all that back then. Right. I was just going on what my my internal hunches and imagination was. And I had this idea, this reoccurring idea to become a fashion model because I had done a couple amateur shows in college. Mm -hmm. And I heard these two guys at the backstage of a fashion show, this little rinky dink fashion show I did. These two guys were talking about Miami. They were like talking about how Miami was this emerging fashion scene, South Beach. Right. And coincidentally, I had done an internship in Miami at the Miami Herald the summer before my senior year in college. So I was familiar with the lay of the land. And I thought, well, maybe I'll give that a shot and see how it goes. And I didn't know at the time that you didn't nominate yourself as a model, but you get, <laughs> you get discovered. Have you done any modeling before? Uh, when I was a kid and my parents really, my dad specifically really did his best to keep me out of it. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of emphasis placed on develop your intellect uh -huh. as a kid. And I think he told me I was beautiful for the first time when I was like 16 and my jaw hit the floor, <laughs> which was great because the attention just so wasn't there, but I think the the upside of modeling, especially if you're going out and seeking it, I think that that's about what's your ticket to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I didn't know that that wasn't how things usually went. You got discovered. Somebody came up to you in a mall or an amusement park <laughs> and said, hey, do you have an agent? That didn't happen to me. You're already too much of a self-starter to be a model. That like immediately right. disqualifies you. I discovered myself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's a book title. Like, like, you could be a model. You should be a model. <laughs> they don't recognize they don't know yet you should all you have to do is get yourself in front of the agents and they will obviously see what you see exactly and invite you in and give you all this money and shower you with adoration so of course that's what i was thinking and uh i went to some some local modeling agencies in chicago where i was working in advertising and uh and i got rejected by everybody except for except for one agency they agreed to help develop me because I didn't have any photo. I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything. And at the time I didn't realize that now we're, now we're in the mid nineties. I didn't realize that most agencies only had like a handful of black models right? at the most. And if there was any other black model that looked even remotely like you, yeah, they were like, Oh, we already got someone who looks like you. So usually it's like one person and you know, it's not because they're racist is that the industry wasn't, Black models weren't in demand. Yeah. You know, so they want to work with people who they know they can get work for because they don't want you calling them up every day asking what's going on and there's nothing going on for you. Right. Nobody wants that. I get it. So they're just responding to the market. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I start, I, I go in and get represented by these guys. And then I tell them right day one, hey, I'm going to Miami because Miami's where it's at. And I've always wanted to go there. And they go, well, let's do a few pictures of you first so you can get an agency in Miami. So now I'm getting, I'm learning about the game. And then after a few months, I go to Miami. Same thing happens. I get rejected again. I didn't realize the value of getting rejected so much because what it ended up doing was making me immune to rejection, <laughs> you know, from the most superficial things too, which is great. Yeah. Because how often do we get caught up in like superficial stuff and getting our feelings hurt because of something that we can't control but that's all modeling is really is every day you're engaging in a beauty contest mm -hmm. and, and you get rejected from the like i don't like his nose or i don't like yeah. his you know he's got that knot on his forehead or he's too tall or whatever whatever the thing is but anyway being in miami was where i ran into this guy who was you know like i mentioned at the agencies there was like one or two guys that the big agencies had and there was this one guy who was everywhere this one black guy was everywhere his name is michael anderson he's actually a friend of mine now and uh, i would see him in all the i'd go to barnes and nobles for hours just look at all the magazines he'd be in all the editorials and everything in the magazines 
And so one day on South Beach, I'm walking around and I'm not working. I'm getting like one job every blue moon. Yeah. And I see this guy on a skateboard and I was, I was like, is that Michael Anderson? And he's like God to me, right? He's like the person I'm aspiring to become because he's working. He's, he's working. He's like taking drags of a cigarette. He's no shirt on. He's on a skateboard. Complete like model life type of lifestyle thing. You know, the ones who don't care, the ones who get all the work. That's kind of how it goes. I was like all dressed up and all, you know, got my little portfolio. And so I go up to him, all nervous. I'm like, hey, um, are you Michael Anderson? He goes, yeah. You know, so we started a conversation. And as I'm talking to him, he's like staring at me, you know, between drags of cigarette smoking. And he obviously could tell I'm like green behind the ears and learning about the business, all that. And then he finally gives me some advice. He just says, you should stop eating meat. And I'm like, why? And then he said, because you have this water retention in your cheeks. And if you stop eating meat, you can get those chisels in your. So it was completely superficial reason, right? But again, it was like God telling me to stop eating meat. So guess what I did? (laughs) I stopped eating meat because I want to be like Michael Anderson. I want to get those (laughs) kinds of jobs. Yeah. And then long story short, what I realized when I stopped eating meat was I felt better because mm. I was eating fast food and pizza and all this, and I was getting headaches and I didn't know what was going on. And I stopped eating meat and I felt better. I st- stopped getting headaches. I stopped feeling tired all the time. And I was like, whoa, there's something to food. So that connection is what opened up this whole other world for me, which then led to yoga which then led to meditation and everything that I'm doing now, because I had this, this idea to go to Miami, go to South Beach, didn't make any sense. I nominated myself to be a model. You know, I ran into this guy who was like on the surface, wasn't going to give me any wisdom that I could then use to benefit my life. And the wisdom he did give me was for completely superficial reasons, but because he was who he was, I listened to it. And that was the gateway. You know, who would have ever imagined that moment being so transformative? The messengers that show up in the ways that they show up in our lives are <laughs> unexpected. It's crazy. It's crazy. So yoga was the gateway to meditation then. Yeah, yoga. So it was vegetarianism okay. to yoga to meditation. So I modeled for like seven and a half years, ended up in New York City, you know, was operating at a pretty high level at that point. Yeah. But I still was, I was never a supermodel, but you don't have to be a supermodel to make an okay living. I was probably making, you know, maybe in my best year, I made like 120,000 or something like that. But that could be off of working once or twice a month for a year. Yeah. So you have a lot of downtime. So in your downtime, you're either in the gym or you're walking around going to cafes and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm in the gym every day. Like that's my job is to be in the gym. And this is again, this is mid 90s. So we're not talking about hit critical mass, you know, yoga's everywhere. It wasn't at the time. Um, there were some a few yoga studios. If you re- really hardcore and you understood where those were, which I, I wasn't at that level. I never even heard about yoga before. I was just working out at the gym. Yeah. And then one night I was in Equinox, the first Equinox which was on Amsterdam in 76. Wow. That was my gem before it became this huge franchise chain. Early adopter. Yeah. I was there because I got a model discount. That's why I was able to afford to go to Equinox. I got a model discount. I showed my composite cart. They gave me like, what, $20 off or something. I was like, okay, I'll do this. And, uh, and I'm on the shoulder press one night and it's up on the, on the second floor where the exercise room is. And I see these beautiful women. They're all glowing. They all look like you, in fact, you know, (laughs) tall and beautiful. You're like, they don't eat meat. And yeah. (laughs) And they look like vegetarians and they were barefoot and they had these little rolled up uh, rubber things. And I was like, where are they going? I want to, wherever they're going, I want to go there. So I literally stopped in the middle of my shoulder press sets and I followed them into this room and I ended up being in my first yoga class. Now I had never really stretched a day of my life. So I was like, Mm -hmm. my hamstrings were like bridge cables, right? I was so tight and I was the only guy in the class. Yeah. So the teacher, for whatever reason, decided to use me as an example 
to model some of the poses and whatnot. And I couldn't get into anything. Right. She would literally come over and twist me. And then I bounced back like a thick rubber band <laughs> and it was emasculating. It was embarrassing, but I went back to a new teacher. And then finally I found a teacher that I connected with. And then I kept doing both working out and the yoga and I was always the only guy in the class. And I was just like, this is amazing. How do guys not know about this? Yeah. Even just aesthetically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eventually, I just got deeper and deeper into it. And, I, and then I didn't care about the fact that women were in the class. I, didn't, I shouldn't say I didn't completely. I wasn't completely unconcerned. But it, that wasn't the reason why I was going primarily. Yeah. I was going because it felt, again, it felt good. And so, you know, I had these experiences, church, school, nine to five, et cetera that didn't feel good. I didn't know why, but now I was having experiences where it felt like me, mm. you know, and I didn't have to understand why I just knew that it, this is what it feels like when something is for you. Yeah. You don't have to convince yourself to do it. You don't have to talk yourself into it. You actually wake up looking forward to it. You schedule your day around it. Mm -hmm. So that was awesome. And then that led to reading Conversations with God and Celestine Prophecy and Seed of the Soul and all these classic spiritual books. And then I started talking to my friends about this kind of stuff. And I went to my first meditation circle in um, New York City up in the bell tower of the Riverside Church on the Upper West Side. And, and I, I was the only one of all my friends who were doing all of this stuff. And so it was the novelty of it was also really interesting because mm -hmm. then I could go back and tell other people about it. Yeah. And then I moved to LA in 2002. And that's where it's like, I arrived at the Mecca. Like there, right. there were like tons of other people yeah. who are into vegetarianism and yoga. Yeah. It's like everything you, I've been, I've been like experimenting with as a pioneer mm -hmm. in my friend circle. Cause I'm hanging out with models, right? These right. guys aren't interested in all this stuff. But now in LA, I've discovered a city of yogis. Yeah. And it was fantastic. So I was in heaven. And so that's when you really started working with meditation. Yeah. So like three months after I moved to LA, that's where I, I came into contact with my meditation teacher. I was introduced by a friend of mine who was my quote unquote meditation friend, mm -hmm. meaning he's somebody I hung out with almost every day. And um, he was a yoga teacher. In fact, he was the one that introduced me to, or kind of inspired me to finally become a yoga teacher myself. And every time we hung out, it didn't matter what we were going to do. We could be going for a hike. We could go into the movies. We'd be going to lunch. He would always ask me the dreaded question, have you meditated yet? And it was dreaded for me because even though I was a fan of the idea of meditation, yeah. I didn't enjoy the actual practice because it didn't feel like anything was happening. And I had the monkey mind, the whole, the whole thing. And I would always peek over at him. And he'd be sitting there with this little, very pleasant look, like he was just being enveloped in peace or something. And I was like, what the fuck does this guy know that I don't know? But we never talked about it. Yeah. Because, you know, part of it was like, okay, I'm teaching yoga now. I, I know what meditation is all about. Yeah, you know? right. And then one day we're on a hike and he just kind of offhandedly mentioned that his meditation teacher was coming to town from Arizona. And he said, you should come by and, and uh, and check them out. And so I literally went on a, it was like a February night in 2003. I went just because he invited me. Like I wasn't going because I thought I was going to meet someone to teach me meditation. That wasn't why I just thought, you know, it's probably gonna be some other guy with a robe on and, you know, funny accent and I'll go see what this is all about. But it's, it's a social thing. Mm -hmm. There's gonna be other people there from the class. And again, I'm all about the social connection. Yeah. Right. That's why I went to school. That's why I went to church for the social connection. So I, I showed up at this yoga event, which in my head, that's what it was, a yoga event, not a meditation event. It's a yoga event with a meditation teacher um, who was going to be there talking. And I walked in and when I laid eyes on the teacher, this guy was emanating a level of peace and presence that I realized in that moment that that's what I've been looking for my entire life. Wow. Someone who actually felt happy. Yeah. Right. I want that. That's what I said to myself. I want that. I want to do that. I want to, I want to be up there in front of people. I want other people to feel that same way mm -hmm. when I'm sitting there. Like I knew I wanted to be a meditation teacher. Mm -hmm. So it was another one of those really pivotal moments that completely changed the course of my life. 
because then I, I, I was just on a mission. I didn't know how it was going to happen, Yeah. but I nominate myself again, this time as a meditation teacher. Mm -hmm. And now I just had to allow the path to reveal itself. And then for a few years, I was apprenticing with my teacher because that's what I felt called to do was to help him whenever he came to town, you know, set up the rooms and do the kind of menial stuff that he didn't really, or shouldn't have to do. Mm-hmm. So I was one of those like little devotee type of people, right? Right. Right. <laughs> Getting people tea and stuff. And it's great. Removes ego. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. But I was always, I felt so blessed because I was always around the knowledge. I was always hearing him train other people and that helped me. I didn't realize how much it was helping me at the time in my later teaching Mm. career, just hearing him engage with literally maybe thousands of people over those few years. And then finally he's, he said, Hey, I'm uh, taking a few of you all who are always coming around his protégés, taking you all to India. Those of you who are interested in learning how to teach this in the way that I teach it. And that's where I learned it with my teacher. And so Went to India in 2007, and that's where the training started. I was away for like three or four months, and then I came back to my one-bedroom apartment in West Hollywood, California, and then I became a meditation teacher. That was the year I moved to LA, 2007. Good good year in Los Angeles. To West Hollywood? Yeah, exactly. Everybody always moves to West Hollywood to of start. Of course, of course. Usually into, uh, oh, what are those apartments that all the actors move into first? Now I can't remember the name of them. There was always like a one stop on your way into LA. Everyone lived in the same apartments. That where you moved to? No, I didn't because I wasn't an actress. <laughs> where did you live? I my first place was actually on Hollywood Boulevard, right at the base of uh, Genesee. Okay. So right on the edge of the hills. Right by Runyon. Right by Runyon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Whole other life. I was on Carson. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I bopped around a bit. I was on um, like Fountain and mm-hmm. Laurel for a bit and kind of all around there. But what part of India did you go to? Went to uh, Rishikesh, Rishikesh, okay. just north of Delhi. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I was in Delhi last year, actually. That city's madness. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It's so much energy. It's like there's no place like it on earth, though. Absolutely not. But such an interesting, India is such an interesting juxtaposition because it has that madness energy wise, but then also meditation as a practice comes Mm -hmm. out of that country. And so it's so fascinating that those two things kind of coexist there. 100%. So I rewatched your TEDx talk that you did in, in 2015, dispelling some of the myths around meditation and was kind of thinking about that concept that it sort of needs a new publicist. <laughs> but can you talk a bit about some of those myths that exist around meditation and maybe even existed for you and sort of as you were learning what your process would be for teaching? Yeah. How you dispelled those? Sure. So the main one is that I need to have a quiet mind in order to be good at meditation. Yeah. You know, that's been the number one concern slash complaint of pretty much 95% of the people that I've taught meditation to. And that was, it wasn't something I, I openly complained about when I was starting out, but it's something that definitely I felt like was a shortcoming of mine, right? Because meditation never felt peaceful in the beginning. Mm. It never felt blissful. I didn't feel like I was reaching samadhi or any of those other terms that get thrown around a lot. And I just got to a point, I couldn't understand how this, this really supposedly peaceful, blissful practice was ever associated with what I was experiencing inside, because it was more like getting a root canal, you know, a mental, a mental <laughs> root canal. That's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and there was no Novocaine. <laughs> so you just have to sit and bear, you know, through the whole thing. And, uh, and the best part was getting to the end of it and, you know, there's a little satisfaction with that. Like I, it's kind of like you just ran an Ironman or something like that. And so discovering that most of what I thought was true about the mind is actually is the exact opposite in that when I was able to practice doing less focus, less concentration, my mind became more settled mm-hmm. in the process. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's one of my main messages now is debunking that misconception that, look, there's nothing wrong with your mind. 
you don't have a monkey mind. Saying you have a monkey mind is kind of like a little kid being afraid of the boogeyman. It's a shadow. It's not the boogeyman. And when it comes to meditation, the monkey mind feeling is really a byproduct of trying to meditate, trying to focus over your thoughts instead of just allowing your mind to do what it's naturally doing anyway. Right. And, and the irony is the less you pay attention to what it's doing, the more settled it becomes. Okay. So that's one misconception. Another one is that I don't have time to meditate. People say, I don't have time to meditate. And the quote that I oftentimes use is Gandhi when he said, you know, I have so much to do today. I need to meditate for two hours instead of one hour. And what that implies is that it's the meditation practice itself that it actually generates time, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't literally create more time. You, everyone has 24 hours. But the question is, how efficient are you with your 24 hours versus the next person with their 24 hours? Because yeah. that's what determines how fast or how slow the time goes is your level of efficiency, your your ability to, to discern and discriminate between what's important and what's not important, how you prioritize your different various tasks and things like that. And so that's what meditation helps you with. It provides you with clarity because it allows the CEO of the brain, the prefrontal cortex to, to blossom. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives us our ability to see connections between what I'm doing now and what needs to happen later. And is what I'm doing now relevant for what needs to happen later. And if it's not, it's easier to outsource that or to just not pay attention to that and to pay attention to something that's a little bit more important. So that's something anyone can use in any aspect of their life, whether it's business, family, personal development, or what have you. And then another one is just the idea that you have to sit like a monk and actually sitting comfortable has been shown scientifically to yield faster results. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to look like you're meditating you just have to feel relaxed, kind of like you do when you're watching Netflix or something. Like you don't think about how you're sitting when you watch Netflix. And because you're not focusing on how you're sitting, you can get drawn into the story a lot easier and stay there a lot longer. And if you are uncomfortable, then however great the story is, you're just going to be wondering how long is it going to last? When is it going to be over? And that's what happens with people in meditation. For sure. You have to be a little careful not to get too comfortable though. I, I did Vipassana one time and got called out by the teacher for having a really comfortable chair. And I was like, I'm getting a little bit, getting a little drowsy. She's like, it might have to do with the fact that you look like you're sitting in a movie theater. Well, see, that's the other thing is that meditation is a very generic categorization of practices. So Vipassana has its own set of rules and guidebook. And yeah, you don't want to sit like that when you're practicing Vipassana. But what I'm referring to is called the relaxation response. And in that guidebook, you actually don't want to sit like you sit in Vipassana. You want to sit in this other way. Right. So when people say meditation doesn't work for me, it's like saying sports doesn't totally sports or cooking doesn't work for me. It's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, for sure. It's just, there's so many different ways to cook something like waffles you can make a waffle you can put a waffle in the toaster right okay then so yeah you cooked so what is your how do you define your style of meditation or, or what are your best practices for meditation i've been practicing a style called vedic meditation okay since i learned it with my teacher so my teacher was a transcendental meditation teacher for yeah i think three decades so vedic meditation is it, it incorporates many of those same principles, which I don't know how familiar you are with it, but just for the benefit of your, your listeners, it is considered to be a householder's style of meditation as opposed to a monastic tradition of meditation, right? Mm -hmm. So here's a really easy way to figure out which style or which tradition you are engaging in. Go to the people who are most successful at that particular style. Look around the room. If they're wearing robes and have shaved heads, that's a monastic tradition, right? If the elite practitioners mm -hmm. have robes on and shaved heads, that's a monastic tradition. Yeah. Conversely, if you look around the room and everybody's dressed like you and they're the elite practitioners, mm -hmm. that's a householder tradition. That's how you know. And so Vedic compared to TM, 
What what are the differences? They're both householder. They're both householder traditions. TM transcendental meditation is a trademarked. Maybe it's a service mark. Maybe TM stands for trademark. So nobody can call what they do transcendental meditation unless they have been trained by a trans a, a certified, officially recognized by that trademark transcendental meditation teacher, even if you do the exact same technique, even if someone who has taught transcendental meditation for years, understands it inside and out, shows you how to meditate, you cannot call yourself a transcendental meditator Mm -hmm. uh, legally or a transcendental meditation teacher. So after a couple of uh, cease and desist letters from the TM organization, my teacher said, okay, we'll call it Vedic meditation. I don't care. Let's switch it up. Whatever. Yeah. Rebrand it. <laughs> right. We meditate. We can adapt to change. It's all good. Totally. So exactly. that's the difference. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> so you are about to release your third book. Is it your third? See, yes. Yes. Yep. Knowing where to look. Can you tell me a bit about the journey from book to book for you and what you've wanted to bring into the world? There it is. There it is, knowing where to look. Look right there. My journey from book to book. So my first book was self-published, which I highly recommend if anybody is considering writing a book Mm. to self-publish a book because you learn about the process. You you, you have to be disciplined in order to self-publish your own book. And that discipline will be impressive to the publishers when you do your second book. Mm. So I like to think about these kinds of endeavors, not as a singular goal, but as a multi-goal goal, right? In other words, look at it as a five book process. So if you want to be a writer, if you want to write books, you, you're going to write five books. That's how you're going to become a good writer. It's not going to be in your first book. Yeah. The first book's going to be crap. Second book's going to be slightly better. Third book is going to be a little better than that. By the time you get to that fifth book, now you can consider yourself a writer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I kind of went into it and, and, and I have to credit my, my teaching with that mindset, because as a teacher, you understand that everything is a process. Mm. No one is going to be an expert in the very, after the very first lesson, right? Yeah. The class is, it's just the formality, the real the real class is when you get into the field, when you get into life and you have to like fit this new thing in, whether it's yoga or meditation or whatever, into your relationship right. and your kids and the cooking and the recreational and, and the reactivity, vacations, yep. and yeah, all the things that don't go your way, mm-hmm. you have to fit in. So once you can get meditation as a daily practice into all of that, now you're getting to a point where you can consider yourself proficient, mm-hmm. right? Just learning how to do it doesn't mean that you are proficient. It means you understand the mechanics of it well enough to take it into the field and start doing your field work. Right. So anyway, I took that worldview and I, I applied it to writing. And so, so yeah, my first book took me like three and a half years because I wasn't as disciplined and I learned that you need to be disciplined. And then and then I did this thing because I was so tired of thinking about it. And I write about it in my most recent book that one day I decided, okay, I pull out my checkbook. I write a check out, you know, and at the time I have maybe two or $3,000 in my bank account, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but that's a lot of money for me, mm-hmm. 2015. And I write out a check for $4,000, which I think was probably all the money I had, Right. And I postdated it to three months from that time. And I wrote it out to a friend of mine who was doing really well in life. So he didn't need my money, which is really important. And I gave it to him along with a contract that I made for myself saying, I, Light Watkins, agree to finish this book, to have it published by such and such date. And if I do not, then you are obligated to bankrupt me to cash this check. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I say. You have to ignore anything I say. Wow. Cause I'm going to try to talk you out of it. You mm-hmm. are obligated to cash this check come hell or high water and spend it on whatever you want to spend. You can donate it to Donald Trump or wh- whatever you want to do with it. Oof. It's up to you. Yeah. And so there was no way I was not going to finish that book within three months. I think I finished it a week or a week or two early, <laughs> just in case anything, I slipped into a coma or something just in case. So I got my friend to sign that. 
and I signed it. And that's when I became a professional as Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art says. Mm -hmm. And I made the time and all the excuses evaporated, you know, no more writer's block. Like I got that thing done. Yeah. And it was the best thing I did because once I got it done, there's that level of satisfaction that comes with that. And then I put it out to the world and, you know, I learned how to market a book through that first book and, and how not to market a book and uh, did a fairly decent job with it. And so from having that first book, when I finally got the proposal together for my second book, I was able to get a literary agent mm -hmm. and I was able to get a publisher for Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, which is my second book, first published book. And then once I did that book, then I started seeing life in books. Yeah. You know, when I went nomadic, I thought, oh, this will be a great book. Let me like go all in on this and I'll write a book about it one day. And when I started writing those daily emails after a few years, I thought, this will be a great book mm -hmm. because now I'm not intimidated by writing books because I've already written books a few times and I know the process. I know what the publishers are looking for. And so I can prepare myself further and further in advance to be in the best position to get a book deal when that time does eventually come. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful learning process. And I, I do these weekly Instagram lives where I talk about the new book and the process of creating it in case anyone else out there is also in the same place of wanting to start writing. But obviously the first suggestion I have is just to start and then mm -hmm. don't try to figure it all out. Just start writing it all out. And, yeah. and the next step will reveal itself after that. That's great. In in researching to name this project that I started, I was looking into the etymology of the word inspiration and the translation, the rough translation is to breathe into. And it was because the ancients believed that ideas were breathed into us by a divine source. And so I think it's so interesting that you through through all of this work with meditation and breath have arrived at a place where your focus is so much about inspiration because it takes it all the way back to why the word was created. I, I actually, I, I, I'm going to read you just a couple of sentences from my book that okay. you just reminded me of. Okay. The word inspire comes from the Latin root word in, which means into and sperare which means to breathe yeah. or blow. Yeah. So to inspire means to blow into as in to receive air to breathe. But instead of air, it's an idea or truth exactly. that we receive, usually from a divine source or what some refer to as God or the universe. Exactly. We Googled the same thing. We did. <laughs> we did. You know, it's funny because at the same time I was researching the salon culture that came out of Italy in the 16th century and sort of came to greater popularity in during the Age of Enlightenment in France in the 17th and 18th centuries. And there was this pull at that time away from monarchy and religion as being the dominant sources of control. And there was this opening up of public discourse around just democratizing knowledge, right? And so... During that time, while it was this boom in the democratization of knowledge, it also made us so much more reason-oriented as a society. And what I love, as divided as it feels like we, we are right now, I do love that these conversations around inspiration, mindfulness, are sort of pulling us back into a place where we can have a more balanced conversation about being rational and reasonable but also allowing for that sort of acknowledgement that there is a dance with the unseen and something we don't fully understand that is a part of inspiration. Mm. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, it's such a, you know, it's one of those words, like the word love, like you can project whatever you really want onto it. Right. So it's kind of fun to write about it and to do podcasts about it because it's like, you can help, shape it for other people and make it a little bit more tangible and accessible for other people. Mm. And if you're really good at it, which was my goal, was to help people understand that they don't have to really go anywhere to get it. It's already inside of them. They just have to kind of invoke it, you know, yeah. like what, uh, again, Stephen Pressfield, Elizabeth Gilbert, and those kind of people talk about, which is show up, just show up. If you just keep showing up for whatever your version of the work is, the muse will supply you with 
the idea and or the inspiration. And all you have to do is really just transcribe what you feel or hear or see. And that becomes the basis for the foundation for your your creative work. Mm-hmm. So that's been my experience. And, and I'm just, you know, my whole objective with this book, Knowing Where to Look, is to articulate that experience in a way that brings it down to reality, as we call it, mm-hmm. and uh, and make it seem not like something that you should treat recreationally, but actually that can inform everything that you do in life. It can inform the way you show up for your family, the way you show up for your job, the way you show up for yourself. And it can enhance an otherwise very mundane, ordinary existence into one that feels full of mystery and adventure and even magic. Right. Whereas nothing changes outside of you. It's just like inside the way you're engaging with your day to day interactions becomes it becomes technicolor. <laughs> you know, it, Absolutely. It, it gets accentuated. Yeah. You go from S- SD to HD. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that, too, is that it's a reminder that we're all creators and creatives, even if people don't identify themselves as such, because we're creating all the time. We're creating our own reality depending on what you believe in and also what your kind of meditation practice is. We also, I, I think, are creating a certain amount of the world in our brain before it's showing up for us, right? So I think that tapping into that and embracing the fact that for as little control as we have over so many different parts of life, that is where the control is, is in the creation of, of our own perspective and existence and experience. It does. It means we're all creators. We're also all role models, Mm. you know, like in our little circle of influence. Like if it wasn't for Michael Anderson inspiring me. Smoking on a skateboard. Yeah. But again, he was like, he was, he was himself. He was natural. He was just, I I just, I felt drawn to that. Mm -hmm. Right. And my friend on the hike who told me about his teacher, if I wasn't impressed already by him just being himself, yeah. then I probably would not have taken him up on his offer and my teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. So the more we can become ourselves, mm-hmm. which no one else can do for us, we have to do it for ourselves. The more of a role model we become. And then we say these like little offhanded things that we don't think much about. And people have said this about me, like, like, this is, you really changed the way I looked at such and such because you said this one comment. And I had no idea. I was like, I don't, it sounds like something I would have said, but I don't remember. Like that didn't feel profound in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. That was just like, exactly. I was probably annoyed or something. I don't know. But when you're truly embodying yourself, you can be annoyed, you can be disappointed, you can be yeah. absorbed in something, and yet you still emanate some inspirational sort of something that attracts people to you. Mm-hmm. And it gives your words and your actions a little bit more weight mm. in those people's eyes. So you are the center of what you're looking for. You just have to cultivate it. This is like one of my favorite sayings is that we can all live in the Garden of Eden, but we have to grow it for ourselves. Mm, damn, that's beautiful. What's that from? It's some like ancient Vedic axiom. Yeah. I don't remember the source exactly. It's probably yeah. translated from Sanskrit or something. Right. Beautiful. And so true. I've had a couple conversations with friends where I think based on how people grew up or how they relate to themselves, people can sometimes feel like self-care is quite selfish for some reason, but you have to put your own oxygen mask on first, right? And and if you are showing up for yourself, first and foremost, and operating from that level, your capacity to create good in other people's lives is exponential comparatively. 100%. So of the 108, is there one you want to share? Sure. I thought you were going to ask me what my favorite one was. I was like, I, I don't have... <laughs> No, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) You're like, I have 108 favorites. That's why there's that many in the book. (laughs) Right, exactly. Okay, let's see. I'm going to find one that is a personal story. Excellent. Oh, here's one. This one one will be relevant. Okay. So I wrote this one when I was down here, like I said, in Mexico City in February of 2020. Actually, it was January of 2020. but I was in Mexico City. It's called New Year, 2020. Last New Year's Eve, I posted the following on my social media page. 
this year is going to be as difficult as last year, no matter what you're intending to create. If you're still defining a, quote, good year by manifesting comfort and material success, you'll be setting yourself up for profound disappointment year after year. If you can view the years like college courses and expect them to be challenging and difficult, you'll be better prepared to engage in the process of learning. If you got broken up with or fired this past year, it wasn't a, quote, bad year if those experiences helped you develop more valuable tools for loving yourself or for making better life choices or for honoring your boundaries. Learning these kinds of lessons is not pretty or comfortable, and it sometimes involves dark nights of the soul and lots of tears. But that's how we learn. No one learns anything of value while comfortable. So forget about creating more comfort in this coming year. Instead, cherish the challenges and look forward to the upcoming lessons as a master class in self-love and judge this next year by how many wonderful life lessons you were able to learn. If the new year doesn't stretch you, you won't learn anything new and you're just going to have to repeat the class the following year. True. That was the beginning of <laughs> And you wrote that pre-pandemic. Pandemic. Damn. I wrote that just before the pandemic. Holy smokes. That's somewhat prophetic. Mm. <laughs> I was the only one who saw wow. it coming. <laughs> wow. Well, it was That's what I tell myself. It was a year where, you know, we all really found out what our relationships with our minds are. Yeah, with our relationships with a lot of things. Yeah. With with sitting in a room by yourself. Yeah. And your relationship with alcohol and your yeah. relationship with with new information and helping other people and worry and all of those things, fear, mm-hmm. yeah, all of it. So it was a very profound experience. But I feel I felt like that for a long time. And I also feel like that about relationships in general. Like they're we should treat them like college courses. We're there to learn. Mm. It's not that say that I'm anti love and romance. I'm pro learning and connecting and not projecting your happiness onto someone else. Like you have to bring the happiness to the table. Like uh, Robert Persick said, the only happiness you're going to find at the top of the mountain is the happiness you bring up there with you. Mm, Yeah, that's very true. I know. I think if we could start more projects, relationships with a feeling of abundance and overflowing abundance that we wanted to pour love and energy and inspiration into something else as opposed to seeking from it, it would set up very different courses of, of love, of careers, all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time because it looks very sunny behind you. But uh, to finish up in all of this research on inspiration, if you were to kind of distill it into a few tips for people to take into their lives, to open themselves up to the inspiration that's within and that's all around us, what would they be? You know, it's kind of how I sign off on my podcast interviews that I do for at the end of the tunnel, which is follow your heart, take leaps of faith. And if nobody believes in you, I believe in you. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to finish up. That's it. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. You, your questions are so well-researched. and I, As a podcaster and a podcastee, I truly appreciate <laughs> the preparation and uh, and the depth of, of research. Absolutely. Well, as as one person who started a podcast in a pandemic to another, keep up the, the brilliant work on your side as well. Thank you. And congrats on the new book. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great day. Enjoy Mexico City. And that, beautiful people, concludes this episode of The Inspirati. I hope you picked up some inspiration to take into your day. Please rate, review, subscribe, and leave a comment if you're enjoying these conversations. You can follow The Inspirati on Instagram or find me at alex.merrill. Stay inspired and keep creating. The world needs it more than ever.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.